This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You know, I think the discussion point of the day for this pandemic has been the vaccines, the distribution and availability of the vaccines, and how quickly uh, is that occurring. Uh, And then once we do get the vaccines, how are people reacting? So let's get the latest. We can do that with our good friend, Dr. Ian Lusbader. Uh, He comes on our show often to give us the latest uh, intelligence. Dr. Lusbader is a clinical associate professor of medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Lusbader, thanks again for joining us. I understand you took the vaccine. Could you tell us about your experience uh, taking the vaccine and then maybe any side effects you may have had? Absolutely, uh, Paul and Alex, thanks for uh, having me on. Um, The vaccine really, for me, was not bad at all. That was last week, last Wednesday. And there is, uh, for many of my colleagues uh, who took them, uh, there were about 150 people that day uh, here at uh, the NYU Center for Men's Health. And um, we've done, you know, several uh, thousand, really, throughout the city. Usually it's a, a localized pain, very similar to a flu shot, so you have um, uh, some soreness at the site, usually for 24, sometimes a little bit more than that. Um, I didn't even take Tylenol, so I was sort of underwhelmed. But remember, that's the first shot. Many people seem to have a little bit more of a side effect after the second shot, and uh, colleagues of mine who, who uh, are physicians who had COVID and appropriately said, you know what, we know the vaccine gives us higher antibodies for a longer period of time. Several of them also took uh, the vaccine, which was appropriate. A couple of them actually seemed to have a little more severe uh, reaction, uh, some fevers and some aches. So it does seem perhaps that in the people who've had COVID who take a vaccine, again, that's appropriate. Uh, We think it does boost your, you know, the length of the immune response. They seem to have a little bit of a harder time with it. Interesting. This is the first I've heard of that one. Um, Technical question. So you go and you get your vaccine. How did you know when to get it, where to go? How do you know when to get back for your second dose? And I know that you might be in a different situation because you work at NYU Langone and you're a doctor, but I'm trying to understand like where the issue is with getting the shot in people's arms. So you're you're totally right that we all um, need to do uh, to kind of roll this out more, and we can talk about that. But at least at NYU, um, I think it's really quite efficient. Uh, almost everyone is on um, an electronic medical uh, record system. It's called MyChart. Uh, everyone has a record. You are uh, pinged when they when your shot is available. You then schedule uh, a date and time. Uh, show up for it. Sometimes there's a bit of a wait. You know, everything does not go off exactly on schedule. Um, But it was very, uh, pretty seamless, I must say. You know, first day there was a real surge of physicians and nurses, and we continue, you know, to bring people in. And so really, the chart notifies you when you're ready. It notifies you to make a date. Uh, Hopefully, you show up for that. And then you have the staff available, uh, you know, to give it to you. Uh, And generally, this is daytime hours. Uh, Some sites are running on Saturday. Uh, So basically, as many as can be scheduled during that, you know, essentially eight 
to like five hour uh, time frame uh, is done. So is the expectation, doctor, that as we get this to more broad rollout, the city to some degree for post spokes for people in uh, New York City, the city will have, you know, the sourcing of the batches and then will allocate them to various distribution places, whether it's a hospital or a doctor's office. Yes, that's exactly it. We've already had a lot of doses allocated. I think New York State is somewhere around 900,000 doses. In the city, it's only been about 55,000. This is what I'm hearing from, you know, the sources, shots actually given so far. And I think total New York State is about 90,000. So there is a gap between what is available and actually physically giving those shots out. And, you know, at one point we had heard about the military or other people doing it. To my knowledge, that's not happening. The medical centers and, and offices are giving it out, you know, as hubs. It, it comes to a hub, especially because of the refrigeration that's needed. So they're sort of come to a main hub like NYU. They're then distributed to several sites. Uh, under normal refrigeration, and then you have X amount of time to distribute them. And basically, on a daily basis, they are uh, couriered to the to the sites when they're then distributed throughout the day. So it is not the um, you know logistics. I think are slowing this up a little bit. It's not those lines of people waiting in the old days for mass vaccinations, uh, even, you know, whether it's at CVS where, you know, people would just come in because of, you know, restrictions and scheduling. It's going to be, a, unfortunately, a slower process, but uh, that's my take on it. When we start vaccinating the ordinary population, how are those people going to get that information? Is it their primary care physician? They're going to have a number? It, well, how does it work? So it's unlikely, it's going to be a while before the primary care physicians are doing it. Once we get the, the health care providers uh, vaccinated, uh, and this is according to our, uh, you know, more senior administrators, once the doctors and nurses and frontline people uh, in the ICUs and so forth get the shots and we're in the process of doing that, the next group, my understanding, is 65 and older. And at least for the patients who are on the MyChart system at NYU, uh, they will receive an electronic message as often they communicate just as patients can reach me by sending me a message. NYU sends out uh, this sort of mass information. Here are the people who meet the criteria. They then schedule an appointment. And I believe uh, some of them will be at this office, at this hub, uh, where we do have the vaccine. They will have to schedule it. And then they will come in and, you know, not past a certain amount per day. So still with us, Dr. Ian Lesbader, a clinical associate professor of medicine over at NYU Langone Medical Center. We were just talking about what it's like to get a vaccine, how you wind up lining up people to get their shot, how that's all going to work. But it's like we're getting ahead of ourselves, doctor, because first we're dealing with the virus that's in the here and the now. And that brings me to the new strain that we saw in the UK and that seems to be spreading all over the world. What do we know about that new strain? Well, we certainly know uh, that in uh, the UK they identified this, and we also know that viruses mutate. Uh, we see that with the uh, influenza virus, you know, that we need a new vaccine every year because there's significant mutations. In this case, we think there are probably several reasons why the virus mutates already. There have been a number of mutations, somewhere in the range of 14 or so, and likely that is due to uh, selective pressure. 
if the virus is too deadly, uh, you kill off your host, and that's not good for the virus. So if you can increase transmissibility, uh, in other words, make it easier to spread, great, the virus reproduces better. And if it's a little less lethal, uh, you keep your host alive longer to infect other people. So there is this selective pressure, uh, not just for this specific coronaviruses, but many other viruses over time, to become a little less, uh, a little less uh, deadly. And, and we are seeing the case fatality rate come down a bit. But the numbers of cases, and, and with, with something called the R naught, the number of uh, people you can infect when you're infected has gone up, and that's a concern. I, I think we're going to see continuing rise in numbers because of that. And I think there's some evidence that that variant is here, or if not, probably will be here, even if you cut off flights. As you know, people can be asymptomatic. They can harbor it. So I think it would not be surprising to see our numbers go up in January, uh, both due to holiday gatherings, probably as well as due to um, new strains that are appearing. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, doctor. I mean, you know, as I think back to that first uh, wave in March and April, we were all hanging on. It seemed like every word from Governor Cuomo in those daily press conferences and, and looking at that chart and learning a new term, which is bending the curve. When do you expect that we will see a peak in new infections uh, in the United States here in this latest wave? Yeah, we unfortunately uh, did not do a great job in uh, in bending the curve, uh, really due for a variety of reasons, uh, public health issues. We Everyone was not wearing, you know, masks and, and really doing adequate social distancing. And unfortunately, by sort of prolonging this, we've paid a price, I think, economically by these sort of uh, shutdowns on and off again. Uh, my sense is I think we're unfortunately going to peak into late uh, January and February most likely. There's about a three-week, two, three, four-week delay with all of this. So I, I suspect that's when it will occur. We will be getting more vaccine. I think we've had a problem with distribution with the vaccine. Part of it is the sub-zero Pfizer temperatures. I think as Moderna comes out, as AstraZeneca comes out, as J&J comes out, it will be easier and hopefully distribution will be easier. Of course, all of this would have been easier had we had a universal health record where everyone is on the same electronic record. You can communicate with large numbers of people. Otherwise, mass vaccination is not easy to do. But my sense is that we're going to see some unfortunate numbers later in January. Real quick, how are we doing with deaths? The case fatality rate is down. We've changed our approach to treating people. We're often uh, less aggressive in putting people on ventilators. So that's the good news. The problem is a surge where you can overwhelm hospitals, and that looks like that may be happening in various areas, which is the downside. So although case fatality is, rate is down, the numbers really are climbing uncomfortably. Dr. Ian Lisbader, thank you so much uh, once again for joining us and sharing uh, your knowledge and, and wisdom of as we deal with this virus and now the good news, the vaccines. Dr. Ian Lisbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. We always appreciate uh, the perspective from the good folks at NYU uh, Langone uh, School of Medicine. Boy, a fascinating story in the Bloomberg Business Week this week. Uh, it's about how a charity, this one in Canada, uh, the superstar founders, how they innovated its way to political scandal. It's a kind of just a really 
deep, deep story that you can sink your teeth into. Let's get to it. Uh, Joel Weber, editor, Bloomberg Business Week, joins us on the Access Line from Brooklyn. And Danielle Bokov, she is the metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg News. She is in Toronto. Joel, just a fascinating story here, how these two brothers came together, built up this really amazing philanthropic organization, and then it kind of just went downhill recently. Tell us the story. Yeah, so it, it's been a dramatic year for We Charity. And if you're, if you're not familiar with this, this is like a superstar uh, uh, charitable organization based in Canada. And it has, it has had this dramatic rise over, over decades. And really, if you think about where they were a year ago and where they are, where they find themselves right now, I think that there's just been, uh, you know, COVID's hit everyone. Um, but I think in, in particular, this organization found that it was not only derailed from its main sort of a, a way that it would have been able to, to fundraise and, and make money, but then on top of it, um, it, it also found that it acquired a form of scrutiny that it was sort of unaccustomed to. And I think that is ultimately where Dan Danielle and Natalie's reporting in this story is so, so dramatic. So Danielle, can you tell us a little bit more And you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about this is you obviously being in Canada, what is We Charity and, and particularly the, the co-founders, two brothers, the Kielbergers, what have they been known for? They're really well known here and they have been for some time, Joel. They they started out um, as Free the Children, which was a charity founded when Craig Kielberger was only 12 years old to combat child slavery. So he was a child activist, and then he and his brother Mark kind of built this organization up. And they moved into other work in developing countries, so building schools, providing clean water, those sorts of projects. But they also did a lot of educational work in Canada, especially, um, and, and also in the United States and the UK. So you know, they would go into into classrooms, for example, and teach school children in the developed world about philanthropy and inspire them to volunteer or to fundraise, often for We Charity, but, but for other causes as well. And I think what's sort of interesting is just how encompassing their reach was. So they had a lot of big corporate donors, they had celebrity supporters, scores of school kids, and, and we're just sort of generally really well connected in Canada's elite establishment, which is still pretty clubby. And then the other thing they were really famous for were these Wee Days, which were these kind of massive jamborees, these really feel-good events at stadiums with pop stars, um, where some of the school kids in the developed countries who were really involved, they were called changemakers, were essentially rewarded for doing good deeds by, by getting to attend. And that, that was kind of like, in a nutshell, they have a complicated business model, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, and you were saying, you know, celebrities, like they're mentors by the likes of like Oprah, for example. Um, so what happened? Where did things go wrong this year? Yeah, so Joel mentioned that COVID was a blow to them. Me to We, which is the for-profit arm, uh, operates trips to countries where the charity side does the development work. So you would have volunteers and big donors who would go and they would stay in these really kind of often quite luxurious surroundings, and then maybe they'd help, like, dig a foundation for a school or something for a little while, um, or tour a community. And the revenue from those trips uh, would, would go into the organization, and some of it would go into the charity. And obviously that was hit by COVID. 
you can't travel during COVID. Um, the stadium stuff was, was shut down as well because those events couldn't be held. But then the other thing that happened was in June, the Canadian government uh, under Justin Trudeau awarded we a lucrative contract to run a program offering COVID relief grants to student volunteers. And this would have paid a lot of money, like up to $35 million, which was like, mm. you know, equivalent to a year of corporate and foundation donations. So it really seemed like a lifeline but the contract was uncontested, and it turned out that Trudeau family members had been paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in speaking fees and expenses for pastorals supporting the charities. So there were immediately accusations of conflict of interest. And in the course of that scandal, as Joel said, you had former employees stepping forward with allegations of racism, of exploitative behavior, and just generally a lot of people started looking much more closely at this organization. Okay, so where do we stand now for WE, and, and, and what's the organization plan to do going forward? Going forward? Um, it, it's not entirely clear. I mean, they have said that in Canada, the charity arm is winding down. They're planning to sell. They have quite an extensive real estate um, portfolio, which they're planning to sell to fund an endowment that they say is going to be used to sustain their international projects. But they are still operating the charity in the U.S. Um, they're looking at their U.K. arm right now. And so the possibility of a comeback I think I think is not out of the question. They have they have supporters, including some wealthy ones. One U.S. donor, the the Stillman Family Foundation, has taken out full page ads in Canadian newspapers supporting the organization. Um, but but it's not clear. And it's certainly, if we doesn't survive, one of the things that makes me the most sad is that there is going to be a lot of collateral damage in communities in the developing world. Um, you know, obviously, the, the hope would be that some corporations that have parted ways with we amid all of this may step in to help those who are stranded, but we just don't know yet. So, so Danny, you know, one of the most interesting things um, that I think your reporting brought to light was how complicated of a business structure we has used. It's sort of it's for profit when it wants to be, but then it's also a nonprofit when it wants to be. What did your reporting reveal about that? And then I also just want to you to touch on, um, you know, the, the Africa element of the reporting as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the, the story is quite long. The reporting um, that that we did, uh, and certainly Natalie Obiko Pearson did, was absolutely exhaustive. But um, dozens of entities linked to the Kielbergers or to top we executives. There's a graphic in this story, which was our attempt to kind of map the connections. Um, we says the complexity has been dictated by tax laws and regulations, especially in Canada, that kind of trickled down to the structure elsewhere in the world. But, I mean, if you if you look at it, it is it's kind of clear as mud. Uh, <laughs> even one of their their former longtime board members in parliamentary testimony this summer said she didn't know how many entities they they had. So it, it makes it difficult to untangle. The right. accounting is also difficult. Yeah, um, I can imagine to untangle. Uh, sorry, did you? Uh, no, no, I think it's just be running out of time here. So, but I just wanted to thank you, Danielle, for that reporting. And it's just a fascinating report. I urge everybody to take a look at it. Uh, the story in Bloomberg Business Week with Danielle Bakov. She is Toronto Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, joining us from Toronto. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week uh, on the remote access line. 
from Wilkin. Just a fascinating discussion, particularly for those folks in Canada, but everybody I think will find it uh, very interesting. I'm Alex Steele alongside uh, Paul Sweeney. Let's stay on tech for a second. We are joined now uh, by Rob Locasio, founder and chief executive officer of Live Person. He joins us from Fairfield, uh, Connecticut. Um, Rob, is the Luddite here on the show that's uh, sub-anchored less, what is Live Person? <laughs> So uh, we provide uh, the technology when you're messaging with like Delta Airlines or T-Mobile and you're like messaging them for customer care and sales. And we provide the platform to uh, provide that technology. And then we provide an AI layer to do these conversations with automation, what we call chatbots. Uh, Rob, I'm a stock jockey. So the first thing I do when uh, I talk to a CEO is I pop up with a symbol of the company and uh, live person LPSN on the Bloomberg terminal is a stock symbol. Uh, market cap for the company about a little more than $4 billion. The stock is up 66% year to date. Talk to us about how the pandemic has impacted the way your clients, companies, you know, you know, like like Delta Airlines, like David's Bridal, like the Home Depot, like Chipotle, how has it changed how they want to interact and message with their customers? Yeah, you know, the, the, my original vision when I started the company was really about providing a digital experience, much like when you walk in a store. You know, you walk in a store, you're talking to somebody, you can ask questions, they help you. Now, with stores being shut down during the pandemic or limited access, what happened is the acceleration of the use of our platform uh, to recreate the store experience, but digitally is what really has driven the demand in our business. You know, we're, we're going to grow uh, about 20, over 25% this year, and we 3x the number of tra- you know, mes- messages and traffic on our, on our services because consumers, they still want that personal service, and they can't walk into a store. So that changed the game for us with companies like Chipotle and, and companies like that in Home Depot. So what do you do then with, say, the customers at Home Depot and Chipotle that you do that's different than the standard like HSBC, for example, or RBS? Yeah, so Chipotle was really interesting. Obviously, pandemic hits. People are not walking in you know, to the stores. So how do, how do we you know, really change the game there? So what we came up with was uh, a bot called Pepper, and you communicate with Pepper through Facebook Messenger, through iMessage on Apple devices, and you can start basically configuring your burrito right there, and then you go to the store, and they hand it to you when you get to the door. So it really solved the problem of, you know, I, I'm not walking in. I'm not, I need to be socially distant, but now I can do this without having to, you know, sit in front of a burrito and have someone two feet from me. So, so that's the kind of stuff we're doing. We're doing it for one of the largest jewelers in the country. They got shut down, too, but they wanted to create – an experience where a consumer could see the product, communicate with someone, and then once again come to the door, pick it up. If someone's buying a diamond ring, they still have a lot of questions about that. So that's really what we're, what we're powering. So Rob, give us an example of you know, maybe a company that came to you uh, after the pandemic hit that perhaps you hadn't seen before or you'd called on and, and they weren't interested, but they said, boy, the world has really changed. We need some AI-driven messaging. We need to up our game. Yeah, I go back to this jeweler. You know, a jewelry company was the largest in the country. They, we would never go after them because normally we are powering contact centers. So we're powering these large contact centers like the, the T-Mobiles of the world and, and the HSBCs. And, and what happened was retail, and, and especially this jeweler, we would, came to us and said, look, 
we can't get people into the stores. They want to buy jewelry. How can we create a different experience with you? And then during the first couple of weeks, we went live right after, uh, the, right after Thanksgiving. We sold a couple million dollars worth of jewelry within two weeks. Whoa. So they, they weren't even sure themselves. We'll, we'll make an announcement, the name and everything that shortly. But they weren't even sure themselves. Would people buy jewelry like this? How would they do it? But they are so bought in on how this just changed the game. And now they're rethinking. Now what's happened is not like, oh, we have to have our stores open or we've got to create the same experience. Now they're thinking this could be a main way in which we sell. So we're bringing video to that now, too. So you mm. can do a video conversation. And then we have all this automation. We have all the AI that will keep the consumer engaged. So maybe they bought something. There's a follow-up from the AI. How did it work? How was the gift for your wife? And we build all of that connective tissue to create this unique consumer experience versus they went into a store, went home, and now they're on their own. They're so, always connected to the brand. Okay, so based on that, I mean, I get why it would work for a jeweler, right? Because you're not going to drop, like, thousands of dollars just by looking at something online, right? You want to talk to somebody. I get that. But for, like, a Chipotle, why wouldn't I just go to Seamless and, like, buy it on Seamless? Like, there has to be some kind of barrier for entry that makes the most sense. Because, it, it, first of all, Seamless is it puts themselves between the consumer and Chipotle. When you mm -hmm. think about it, they're in between them. They've got the relationship. So Chipotle said, we want to have a direct relationship with our consumers. And the other thing is that you find consumers want to ask questions versus they may just be looking at a menu. But in this case, they may want to ask a question about, hey, I'm a vegan. Can you help me with that? And they ask different questions with the AI versus I just see stuff on a menu. I, I may or may not see what I like. Where is this? Is the beef grass fed? Is it not? And those are the types of things we can create in the experience of what we call conversational commerce. So when you think about the vision of the company is that, you know, we, we know Alexa exists, obviously. We've all used this, or many people have. We're trying to bring that same experience to every brand in the world. What if every brand had their own Alexa? And they had that you could talk to this machine and get help and get much more personal service than just a static menu. And that's the transition that's happening right now in digital commerce. Hey, Rob, what's in the next 20, 30 seconds, what's the next category that you think is ripe for your technology where you think you can help? Look, we, we launched a bank called Bella Bank in partnership with another company, and it's out there now. And you can go and see it at bellaloves.me. And we built this AI to bring love, empathy, trust to banking. And if you go and you download the app, there's this thing called Bella, and it helps you. And it, it literally will, like, if you're getting a cup of coffee, sometimes it picks up your cup of, cup of coffee. It actually pays for your cup of coffee and says, look, this is on me. Maybe this will make your day brighter. And so – we built this technology because we wanted to change the banking world. And right. so that's a, great, that's a great thing. We just put it out there. We've, we now have close to 8,000 consumers that signed up in the last three weeks because hmm. they want that kind of trust and connection with something like a bank. Interesting, interesting. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Really interesting uh, story. I saw your company went public in 2000, so you guys have been around for a long time. Good to see the company doing well here in a very difficult environment. Rob Lacasio, founder and chief executive officer of Live Person, based in Fairfield, uh, Connecticut. Just a really extraordinary story there. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.